Welcome everyone, it is 3 p.m. and it's time for the server room show. This is episode 23. Thank you for SDF Public Unix Systems for hosting the server. Today's episode 23 and the next Saturday's episode 24 will be dedicated to uh, a two-part interview I did with uh, George Neville Neal talking about uh, BSD computers and uh, many other things in general. As normally, there is a call-in option in, in during this show. Uh, it's not going to be available now for this episode 23 and uh, next episode 24, because uh, you will listen after this introduction. You will listen to the first the first part of this interview I did with George, and in episode 24 you will listen to the second half. The end of the interview and I will close it with uh, some of my personal uh, thoughts and kind of like an epilogue as always you can find the information regarding the show on the website victormadaras.freeshell.net Victor Madaras is spelled with uh, K the Kilo and uh, Sevilla Zimbabwe on the end so victormadaras.freeshell.net it's better like that because you can find all the information there regarding contact and contact information and where to find the uh, show notes where to download uh, the video recordings where to find the previous episode so I don't need to waste uh, a lot of time with, uh, with the general introduction as I uh, someone pointed out to me that it's best to keep uh, short so like that we don't waste uh, that much time for the 30 minutes slot we have One, once both half of this interview uh, airs I will upload the whole unedited uh, video of 45 minute interview uh, the whole interview which was concluded with George to the show the server room shows uh, video channel of that uh, Peertube uh, instance and you can uh, watch it, uh, watch the video there in, in, in one piece. But I wanted to take advantage and uh, break it up to two parts so people who listen to this as a form of uh, a podcast or uh, only uh, listening to it at uh, anonradio.net, as the slot is there is uh, 30 minutes, they have an option to to listen to the to the full interview in just in two parts without uh, without uh, need to shorten it or cut pieces out of it so i hope you will enjoy it i really enjoyed uh, making it and for the future i have uh, probably uh, another bsd free bsd uh, person interview coming up if everything goes okay so George Isman uh, was the first one in this uh, line of uh, interviews and hopefully there is more to come. I also want to do at some point another episode uh, regarding uh, BSD uh, history so you can uh, get a, a better understanding or a better uh, knowledge of uh, where this BSD thing comes from and uh, what does it mean 
for us today because uh, as you see the world tends to uh, think only in Linux and in Linux terms and there are much more uh, other things out there uh, Linux is not your only option you have uh, BSD and the BSD uh, like Unix distributions as your option but FreeBSD, NetBSD, even OpenBSD so after this long uh, introduction I wasted uh, some time uh, please listen and enjoy the first half of the interview with George Neville New. George, thank you very much for agreeing to do this. I know that you you're a busy man, even though I I it was a bit hard for me to find any information about you on Wikipedia or elsewhere when I was trying to 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 know you a bit more or prepare. Uh, study you a little bit more before writing up the questions and mm. uh, thank you for agreeing to this sit down and to talk a little bit uh, about you and about what you do so people in and out of the community of uh, SDF uh, public access Unix system can have a chance to know you a little bit better yes oh, there is no no information about you online I don't know how you managed to to do that with all the all the things you you did so far being involved well, i mean if uh i guess mostly what people would find were my talks because most of my talks have been recorded yes i i i managed to watch uh, one or two and it helped me to to form a, a better understanding and uh, come up with some of the the questions pretty much uh, hopefully the ones which made a bit uh, more sense so What's your earliest memories of uh, of a computer, or or did you grow up around uh, around them? Um, so I grew up with a lot of technology because my father was a tinkerer, the same way everyone else in my family is. Um, my first exposure to computers was in middle school or junior high school, we call it here in the states, um, where we had two of the early Commodore PET. Uh, computers, which were green screen, 8-bit, 6502 based computers that ran BASIC. Um, and we had two of those in a math lab kind of thing. Um, nobody really knew what to do with them. Uh, but that was my first exposure to computers. And you you got caught, uh, drawn into them uh, early on, or it came... So you had a normal youth uh, period, like, uh, you know, like... Uh, average normal uh, we call them normal people and you remembered computer later on in when you got into uh, as you did uh, eventually you did the uh, computer sciences in uh, in a university in boston or you had a, no, a fixed was, focus <coughs> so i was definitely in the computers as a kid but they were very expensive remember when i was young so my first experience was with these two machines that were sitting in one of the math classes and then when personal computers became a thing. Um, I got my first personal computer was a TI-994A, which I got for Christmas one year. Um, and I did some programming on that. And then the next year I got myself a Commodore 64, which I bought uh, with money working after school. Um, and so it was the, the Commodore 64 was kind of my first real computer for myself. I guess I was about 15. And um, 
once I was in high school, we had access to various types of computers. Um, we had a lab full of Commodore PET computers. We had access to what at that point were somewhat older mini computers shared by many of the high schools in the suburb where I grew up. Um, those were all DEC systems. I learned to code assembly on the DEC system. I learned Fortran on the DEC systems. I wrote BASIC on the Commodores. And we had a couple of Apple IIs that ran CPM, which was interesting to me because it was the only thing that uh, presented an operating system I could really play with. We weren't allowed to mess with the operating system on the DEC systems for obvious reasons because they were a shared resource. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time in the computer lab. Um, I spent a lot of time programming uh, my Commodore 64. And uh, around the age of 16, I got my first job programming computers. Um, I had taught myself the language that was used to uh, do DBase programming. DBase was an early database for uh, personal computers from Ashton Tate. And a friend of mine who was a little older had been helping an insurance company in my hometown um, put all of their records online. And when he went off to college, I took his job working on DBase. So my, my earliest paid job was doing DBase work on IBM PCs. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of my time with computers as a teenager. And then, as you say, I went off to university and studied computer science. DBS were early on in relational databases, no? I remember them vaguely from the, the DOS era. My father used them DBase 3 and, and yep, even DBase 4. Yeah. Yep. So DBase 2 was available in our high school. Um, for some random reason, I have no idea what they were using it for, but anytime there was a new piece of software that was that had some sort of computer language to it, I would try to learn that piece of software. So um, I learned DBase 2, and then this friend was working on DBase 3, and it wasn't that big a jump. Um, I mean, now you look back at it, and it's fairly simple, uh, one or two page programs to extract the data from the database. Um, there was a whole group of something like four people who were just inputting all of the records off of paper onto the computer um, run by this. I mean, the insurance company had one, one or two salesmen, the, the owner, and I think one of his sons or something, and then a bunch of people who were office workers. And the office workers were all just taking tons of paper and typing it into various forms that went into this DBase stuff that all sat on a little hard drive. Um, and I wrote programs to extract data from it. But relational, I don't think DBase 3 was completely relational um, in the way that we think of a modern SQL style database. It really was kind of just pulling forms out of, uh, of a table. Um, might have had relational features, but most of what was exposed to the programmer was not an SQL-like language. Hmm. Um, I, mean, I don't remember the language very well because it's now 40 years ago. Uh, not quite 40 years ago, 30, more than 35 years ago. But it was very much more like, here's a key, find all the things related to this key. But in its time, it was, uh, it was innovative enough. and uh, Oh, sure. And it, it was paid well for spread. some of my college, so that was good. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned CP per M. Probably the the your which as it piqued your interest and uh, you got fascinated with it. Could it be that it had any 
any involvement made you somehow get involved or know more about uh, BSD back in the day? So I wasn't introduced to BSD until my freshman year of college, which was 1985. Um, the systems I had access to, the, the mini computers ran uh, TOPS 20. Uh, TOPS 20 or TOPS 10? They ran TOPS, um, which was DEX um, before VMS was DEX Premier Mini Computer Operating System. And I had a friend who worked at the computer center that served all of our high schools until we used to spend evenings printing out the assembly language code of the operating system. And we should probably put that operating system in quotes. <laughs> um, I mean, it was an operating system, but uh, we would print out on green bar paper, the assembly dumps of chunks of the code. And then we would try to figure out what it did. Um, and this is a very common way of learning software when, when I was young. Um, you know, you didn't have access to the source code. There was no open source at the time. There was free software, so you could see other kinds of software. But places like DEC or IBM or any of those things, they, were, they didn't produce their operating systems for other people to look at. They were provided as binaries. So we would dump the assembly code. Um, we did the same thing for the Commodore 64. We dumped the entire ROM. And we would just sit there with green bar paper and a pen and just go through and try to figure out what the functions did and try to figure out where they were and learn how the system worked. Um, so that was kind of my introduction to low-level systems and being interested in how an operating system worked um, because the operating system was the thing that had control over the machine. The programs had to ask the operating system for services, but the operating system was the piece of software that dealt directly with the hardware. Um, and that actually is the thing I've always been interested in is the, the software that's as close as possible to the underlying hardware and that provides the services. I mean, I write application programs as well, but they're not as interesting to me as, as things that actually manage bits or move, you know, move things around in the hardware. Mm -hmm. So after this introduction uh, to BSD and uh, that you figured out that uh, you yourself are interested in, uh, in, in being as slow as possible and close to the hardware, and you definitely don't want to spend your time writing uh, applications which uh, which you can follow a mouse cursor and draw images uh, was it then when you went to wind river as a continuation uh, as they took over uh, bsdi so actually uh, i was at wind river long before the interaction with bsdi so i joined wind river in 1996 um, I had worked for a company that was using Wind River's VxWorks in a product. So that's how I learned about VxWorks. Um, I took, Wind River used to have a one-week training class, um, you know, to teach people how to build systems with their operating system. It was a, it was a really good class. Um, I became friends when I went to work with Wind, at Wind River with uh, um, Nelson, who ran the entire training group. And they, I was very impressed with the, uh, training course that they had set up um, and determined that I wanted to go work for a company that built embedded operating systems. So I applied for a job in the networking group of Wind River and got that job and went to work there in 1996. Um, the acquisition of BSDI was much later, I think 2000, 1999. Um, so 
my original involvement with BSD is actually a, a, a little before that. So I worked at the University of California for about a year and a half um, on a infrastructure project, helping them build what we would now call a package system. So the entire university was sharing over NFS um, all of the various open source packages like Emacs or languages or various packages. And I worked for Eric Allman. Uh, Eric Allman is the original author of SendMail, and he is married to the original author of the fast file system, Kirk McCusick. And so through Eric, I became friends with Kirk and with the rest of the CSRG. That was in 1992 that I worked at Berkeley. And so that's that was my first real, um, I mean, I had used BSD systems before, but my introduction to people working on BSD was while I worked at the University of California, um, hanging out with the CSRG folks. And it was only later that I went to work at Wind River and then much later that Wind River acquired BSDI. But I was, I mean, I was not involved in that acquisition because you don't ask engineers about acquisitions. Mm, I see. And uh, it's good that you you mentioned Kirk and uh, and you you put yourself on the timeline when you when you got involved uh, BSD the the first time around. Therefore, it was uh, before the the lawsuit uh, they had with uh, AT and T. So actually, it was about the same time that about the lawsuit the was being prosecuted. Um, Let's see, I worked at the University of California in 92. I then moved to Holland and worked in Holland for about a year in 93. And the lawsuit, I think, finished up in 93. So when I came back from Holland, um, the first, uh, I don't want to call them legally open source, but I mean, the, the first systems post the lawsuit were coming out. So I actually ran NetBSD on, laptop, on a laptop in Holland in the summer of 93. So that means the court case had to have resolved sometime in the spring. Um, so I ran, I think, NetBSD 0.9. Um, a bunch of us were working on a research project at the Universiteit Twente. Um, and we had these really, what would be considered completely archaic, compact 25 megahertz laptops that we used um, originally running Plan 9, uh, which was the, the, our boss, who was the head of the research project, was friends with Rob Pike. So he was running Plan 9. We all hated Plan 9 because Plan 9 was almost like Unix, but not quite. <laughs> um, and software that you tried to port, like you would try to port LaTeX and it wouldn't work because they had changed the system, system call interfaces or something like that. So about halfway through the year, uh, Peter Bos, who I was working with, uh, who was a graduate student at the time, and myself, tried out NetBSD 0.9. Um, worked fine on the laptops. You could run LaTeX, which is what we cared about for writing our papers. Uh, and everyone in the group, except our boss, switched from Plan 9 to NetBSD. Uh, as we mentioned, the the lawsuit, you 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 jumped uh, way ahead of my of my flow of thoughts I I had uh, here laid out for myself. As you mentioned mm -hmm. the the lawsuit, uh, there was one question I, I I had to ask you. Do you think that, as we know, that uh, Linux Torvalds uh, goes ahead and creates the the Linux kernel about the time when uh, the the lawsuit is still ongoing? 
he claims that there were no suitable operating system at that time for for whatever his he he his purpose or his needs were do you think that if bsd is not being held up in a, in a lawsuit back in the day today we probably wouldn't have uh, linux and or bsd would be the place where where linux is today so i mean it's hard to to rerun history in that way um it's quite possible and when we look at sort of uptake of bsd and linux it has always the the amount of uptake the number of users the number of companies using it has always trailed linux by about the amount of time that the lawsuit took to resolve so many people certainly believe that um i don't know i mean i don't know what what linux would have done if he had been exposed to bsd instead of minix because linux was a reaction to andy tannenbaum's minix um, which was being done at the um, uh, the Freie Universität when Andy, I mean, he's just retired a couple years ago, but Tannenbaum was at the Freie Universität at the time. And Linux's Linux was a re reaction to Minix as opposed to other Unixes. Um, I mean, at the time of the lawsuit, it was still the case that a BSD-style system was more expensive. Um, BSDI sold you source for a thousand dollars US. A thousand dollars in nineteen ninety three dollars is a lot of money, hmm. um, certainly for a student. Hmm. Um, you know, many of us were exposed to BSD because the universities already paid the licensing fee. So in the United States, if you went to a university, you almost always got exposed to some BSD system. Um, even in nineteen eighty five, my first BSD like system was on a. Uh, early SMP mini computer, which was huge, took up like, it would take up more than the space in this room. I called a pyramid and pyramids OS was a port of four, three BSD, I think, or four, two. Um, so for students in the United States um, and in many other places, but definitely in the US, we were being exposed to BSD because it's what university CS departments were willing to pay a thousand dollars or get some machine that had had it ported to it uh, running on it. Whereas, you know, trying to run BSD on a on a home mini computer, which is incredibly expensive, uh, was something that just people didn't do. The closest you could get, I'll go backwards in time. I'll go slightly backwards in time in my own timeline. Um, for a, a multitasking Unix-like system. Uh, for a home system were the Commodore Amiga uh, computers, which ran, uh, they had something called a Xenu kernel, which is a pun on Unix, of course. Um, they were multi-process, not multi-processor. They were multi-process, you, you know, it really looked a lot more like a Unix than say, similarly configured machines at the time, they had a much more powerful processor. But, you know, running, in 1990, 91, 92, 93, running Unix on a machine that cost less than several thousand dollars was really not something most people were going to be able to do. Indeed. To go back for just one second to to your time in uh, Wind River and uh, VxWorks, mm. as you were always uh, into the embedded computing and uh, doing uh, low-level uh, things, then what piqued your interest in this was the complexity 
it gave you uh, the challenge what it means uh, working uh, embedded systems and uh, so close to to the hardware as opposed to to just writing applications and cash out uh, similar uh, fees or, or or success or how how you ever you want to call it so what always attracted me to embedded systems um, there were a few things one is they're difficult to get right so it's not so much complexity as um, you're not protected, right? When you do kernel programming, you're not protected from your own mistakes. Whereas if you're writing an application program, the operating system will tell you you've made a mistake. In an embedded system, sometimes the most you'll get is a red light, hmm. and then you have to go figure out what's going on. But also, embedded systems, um, especially then, but even now, um, are used in application areas that I'm interested in. So my interest is in, um, you know, high performance networking or, you know, very low level questions of performance and traceability. I've worked on DTrace and things like that in FreeBSD. Um, so the embedded world gave me access to that. Also, um, I like embedded systems because I also really prefer portability. Um, so I like working on devices that can be placed anywhere. Uh, server farms are uninteresting to me. They're just sort of big masses of mm -hmm. Intel hardware. Um, whereas, you know, when I was working at, at Wind River in particular, um, your code had to be incredibly portable because it would run on both Indian NISs, right, Intel and, and Motorola at the time. But we weren't just running on Intel and Motorola. We did Intel, Motorola, Hitachi, um, ARM, you know, there was something like seven IBM RS6000, which is what all of our spacecraft were using VxWorks on. So we were reporting to six or seven different architectures all at once, um, and that was that was quite interesting. That makes me me wonder that uh, you, you ended up in uh, in in FreeBSD, whereas uh, NetBSD is the one most known of that those guys want to run BSD on a microwave oven. So for you, uh, it pretty much could have been just the the perfect candidate, no? So the reason I wound up in the world of FreeBSD, and I had started in NetBSD, was um, one of my other interests, and I have many, is portable computing. Um, I like the idea that my workstation is in my backpack, and you know I can basically, as long as I have clean clothes and a laptop, I can be anywhere. I don't have to be at home except when there's a pandemic. <laughs> um, you know I uh, travel quite extensively. And I like to work remote. I am not a big fan of offices. In fact, I really don't like being in an office. So um, at the time of NetBSD 1-ish and early FreeBSD, um, because FreeBSD had this focus on stability and performance on Intel hardware, it meant that I could get a cheap, well, relatively uh, cheap Intel notebook and then put FreeBSD on it. And I would have my workstation with me all the time. Um, and that had been a goal ever since I was a kid. Um, I mean, my my first portable computer was a TRS Model 100, which is a ridiculously limited piece of hardware. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had a Luggable. I, I had always had a very strong interest in portable computing. And so at the time, um, FreeBSD was way more solid on an Intel laptop. I had a, a, a WinBook, um, which was an early Intel laptop. I'd had the Compaq in Europe um, when I lived in Holland. And then this 
Winbook was my first one back in the States. And FreeBSD just ran really well on it. It's also the same thing that brought me to the point of working with Apple hardware. So I always carry two laptops. Um, I have a MacBook Pro, um, in part because it's FreeBSD enough, and also in part because I deal with clients whose the only choices of platforms you get are um, Mac or Windows, and I'm not running Windows. Um, so, you know, I always have a MacBook Pro, and then I always have some um, uh, FreeBSD-based laptops. So for a long time, it was Lenovo's. Um, at the moment, I've just switched to a Dell. Um, Dell does an XPS 13 that is meant for Ubuntu, which to my mind meant, oh, okay, well, those device drivers are going to be available. So I switched this year to, uh, to a Dell XPS that runs FreeBSD. It actually runs it really fast. I don't quite know how they do that. I think they're doing something thermally. That's a bad idea. So I always travel with two laptops, um, the MacBook and the MacBook Pro and the, and the FreeBSD laptop. Um, but it was portable computing, laptop computing that, that brought me to FreeBSD initially um, because it, it, quote, just worked. Um, the NetBSD thing of running on all the hardware is quite interesting. Um, I mean, if I retired and opened a computer museum, it would be great fun because they also run on everything old. Like, they'll still run on a VAX. Yeah. I can't fit a VAX in my New York apartment. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I could, I could see the reason, the reason to do it.